Yeah, no, I, I mean, the way I look at it, MJ will always have the last dance. You know, and he, he's, you know, the greatest performer of the game of basketball that ever lived. But I think in the end, LeBron James may end up having the last word. Those are strong words, my friend. So this is episode number 37. We're getting into, as much as I didn't want to do this, we're going to be comparing a little bit of LeBron's legacy versus Michael Jordan's. We just had the last dance. Today we're talking about LeBron James's legacy. And on top of that, fittingly, we're going to be talking about all these different things we're seeing on social media that are going on in front of our eyes. The social injustices, the blatant racism. We're getting into all that. Um, and we're going to try to talk solutions as well. So I hope you guys enjoy this conversation. Enjoy the last word. Another one. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. We are we are back once again. You're gonna have to explain yourself after that intro. Seven. Thirty-seven. Which number is this? Which thirty-seven? Three-seven. Right after the last dance analysis. Rolling right along, aren't we? Right? We have a lot to cover. Right back into it. Lot to cover, y'all. I mean Honestly, man, I mean, how can we not jump in? I mean, everybody's out there getting at it on social media, in the streets, protesting as we speak. In L.A., man. My buddy who lives downtown filming from his, from his high-rise apartment, people shooting off fire yeah. extinguishers into cop cars. <laughs> right. So you know we had to jump in. In fact, dive in, right? Here we are. So, I mean... Still and yet, we're in this, um, you know, sort of aftermath, you know, the fallout phase of the Last Dance documentary, docuseries. And, um, you know, uh, I, it, we've talked about it ad nauseum in the last, uh, last episode. It, it was a masterpiece. And uh, first couple of days afterwards, all you can think about was just like, Man, what a superhero this guy MJ was, and and how he really just, man, he 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 really brought it every night, and he just transformed the game of basketball. He created this amazing product, these amazing shoes, this just amazing brand, right? Air Jordan brand, and we love it. And he's a superhero, and it's great. And and so then a couple of days later, a couple of days afterwards. Um, I just I just wanted to entertain for a minute like all right so now that we've had the last dance and you know Michael Jordan he's no longer playing the game of basketball what do we have now I'm a basketball fan now in 2020 and last dance was pretty much about most of the 90s the 80s and the 90s Um, it was great to reflect historically but now we're we're seeing stuff on social media and ESPN about how they're trying to get the NBA season going again. They're thinking about going straight into a playoffs, maybe having like the eight seed, you know, kind of maybe up for grabs with a couple of teams. They're almost like an invitational style tournament. It's great, right? Yeah, All these things that are happening. Exciting. So you're thinking about what's happening right now. And 
uh, in addition, and in, in, in the midst of this cultural crisis, um, LeBron James, right, once again, steps forward, stands up, and, uh, and uses his voice for change, for, for social justice. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's special. Yeah, it's, it's a different age now for the athletes, specifically NBA athletes. I mean, you've seen it on the news. You see Joe Burrow. First pick overall, he spoke up. Trevor Lawrence, who still is going to be a junior in college, spoke out on Twitter. You're seeing all these athletes and, and a lot of NBA athletes. You saw Stephen Jackson, who's a retired NBA athlete, take a stand and, and give a speech today as we're recording this. Um, it's a different age where individuals, athletes are feeling more and more comfortable speaking out, speaking up about social injustices. Um, we've always had into athletes in the past who have done so, but fewer and far between. And they, they received a lot more flack, a lot of flack. Um, Muhammad Ali back in the days as, as it comes to mind initially. And then even more recently, Colin Kaepernick's out of a job uh, because of, of him speaking out or taking a kneel. But now it seems more mainstream. And you mentioned LeBron James. He's one of the faces of that right now. And, He's taking the lead with pride, and this is this is part of his legacy. This is part of who he is. He is more, more than an athlete. He has a whole a show called More Than an Athlete, and and it's partly due to because that's the era we live in now, where it's it, I don't want to say it pays to do that, but your sponsorships, your Nike sponsorships, they're going to be behind you now. Popular opinion is is coming around. The tides are turning. It can, in some instances, benefit. The bottom line your pocket but but it's he's it's, he's still taking a huge risk doing that because whenever you speak up politically or socially you're going to alienate certain individuals who don't understand your point of view who grew up differently so he's definitely putting his neck out there um, a lot of these athletes are putting their neck out there and i think you draw that contrast and why we're bringing it up is it's going on right now but it's in contrast to to michael jordan who never did that who rarely did that um, and partly due to the era, although we mentioned Muhammad Ali's even before Ma- Michael Jordan definitely stuck his neck out there. Um, but that's the Bill biggest Russell, di- Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, exactly. Jim Brown. Yeah, a lot of those guys. Different decade, different era. Those would be, as you mentioned, the biggest differences in the legacies between a Michael Jordan and LeBron James. People want to talk about on the court. If you're, you're talking strictly just on the court performance, it's Michael Jordan all day. 6-0 in the finals, six championships all with the same team, just the ultimate competitor, winner. But if you're incorporating off the court and all these different things, LeBron has an entire catalog, a school. He does. Yeah, he does, man. And, and that's really, I think, what, what his legacy is going to be based on. And when you compare Michael Jordan and LeBron James, you're not going to be able to stop with the basketball legacy. You're going to have to include a variety of other things because, you know, the conversations about greatness, right? And greatness can, can occur on many different levels, especially when you're someone that's self-aware uh, and that is accepting of who you are and, is, you know, embraces that. It really opens up your potential in so many tremendous ways, unlocks, unleashes, your potential, you know, and LeBron James and Michael Jordan, what makes them so great to talk about for us and such great athletes, such 
tremendous legends is that both of them, while they took different paths, very different paths, so we're going to talk about that, um, they both were athletes who knew who they were at some point along the, the, the way at different intervals at different times and in different stages and very, 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 again, different paths. They figured out who they were, self-awareness, and then with gratitude and appreciation and recognition for the moment, the game, you know, the ethics of the game, the hard work, the dedication, the sacrifice, the commitment, the blood, sweat and tears, right? Um, then they began to appreciate, appreciate who they were and value who they were and then accept themselves for who they were as athletes, you know, what they brought to the table. And that's when they were able to really move mountains. You know, that's when LeBron James was able to beat a 73 and nine Warriors team. You know, I mean, it, it's just that kind of thing. It takes that combination well, let me of, let me, let me touch on that self-awareness piece mm -hmm. because I see yeah. like you find out what you're really good at. And I think, and we're going to get into their ch the childhoods. We talked about Michael Jordan. Michael Jordan knew exactly what he was good at. He knew who he was from a very early age. I would, I, I would argue before LeBron James. He knew he was good at basketball. He was, knew he was good at winning. He knew he enjoyed winning. He, he knew he enjoyed competition. So that's he, he invested everything into that. Six-time champion, rest is history. LeBron, on the other hand, I think it took a little bit longer for him to figure out who he was and what he was really good at. Obviously, he's really good at basketball, but he, had a, he has other interests, other thoughts, other maybe you can call them distractors or whatever. But at, at the end of the day, he realized, and I think this was after his stint in Miami, after he did the whole not six, not seven championships, it wasn't for him. It, it didn't, it wasn't necessarily about the championships. That wasn't, that wasn't him. Um, maybe he realized he wasn't going to get to the seven championships. Maybe he realized he didn't want, he didn't care at that point. He knew that he had other skills, other abilities off the court. He could add to his legacy, not through championships. He could add to his legacy, improve his legacy, make his legacy bigger not by getting seven championships, by, but by opening up a school in Akron, in his hometown, by being a vocal leader, a presence on social media against social injustices. He knew that his legacy ultimately could be bigger through that versus getting seven championships. So he put his marbles into different baskets versus Michael Jordan's marbles were all in one basket. Win, win, win. LeBron's spread out. And we could argue all day whose legacy is better or worse. Both their legacies are astronomical. And both of them, quite frankly, in my opinion, are going to be everlasting because I see Michael Jordan as someone who epitomized strong work ethic. And if I could be like Mike, everyone wanted to be like Mike. And then LeBron, we're going to talk about it. His legacy is all-encompassing now. Yeah. And just like we always talk about, it, it, it's so impressive and – Fascinating, really, to look back into these these athletes' lives and get to know their developmental histories, and you know that's where uh, immediately the story begins to unfold. Mm -hmm. Immediately, it just jumps off the page how different their paths uh, to success would be. Yep. So we mentioned Michael Jordan's southern rural roots. Grew up in a small town in North Carolina. 
both parents, working class, upper middle class, strong nucleus of family stability, strong Southern American values, work hard and you can overcome anything. And that was his foundation. That's one of the reasons why he knew who he was right away. He knew he could rely on that hard work and those Southern values and that he had that strong anchor, that strong holding environment of his family and those roots to kind of lean back on and have to guide him the rest of his way. In contrast, you have LeBron James. Yeah. I mean, so he, uh, he grew up very differently. In fact, more of an kind of, um, an urban setting that in many ways is kind of one of those forgotten urban communities, much like Detroit, right? Where you have a town that at one time depended heavily on industry, which was, you know, manufacturing. And now, you know, in the wake of sort of more the, the tech age and evolution, towns like Akron, Ohio, you know, just, you know, they, they, they were devastated um, in terms of the opportunities, ladders to success. Uh, when, you, when you lose major industries, they don't really come back in a meaningful way. Were they a big, I mean, like devastated. Detroit, were they all big on automobiles? And like you know, that part, I'm not the sure. The whole exporting. Um, the specific industry, I'm not sure. I know, like, for example, where I grew up, it was steel. Steel was huge in, in Baltimore, as like in Pittsburgh, you know, in the 40s, 50s, uh, and all of that. And man, I saw that city in many ways kind of decay after, you know, there's this, this huge company called Bethlehem Steel. Um, that was like, you know, the heart and soul of Baltimore. Uh, so many people were, you know, their, their livelihoods depended on this organization, this company. And when they went out of, of business, right, an entire community of people, white and black alike, were devastated. Um, and the 80s and 90s and 2000s, in many ways, and, you know, the Baltimore riots, I'm sure many people are familiar with that. That was really sort of an inflagration that was ultimately a culmination of, you know, all of these different elements of poverty, but that seemed to really start with the loss of a tremendous economy and economic force. And economic force like that is also a galvanizing force for community. It brings people together. When people are, you know, prospering, and you know everybody's kind of getting theirs. You know everybody is is feeling good about their situation. It's amazing, you know, what can happen to crime rates and to health outcomes, <laughs> you know, and all these different things. It's amazing, um, but un unfortunately, that was not the Akron story, uh, nor was the story for for many of the smaller towns in the Midwest. Certainly, you know, in the in the year in which LeBron James was born, 1984, and LeBron was, of course, born to a very young mother who unfortunately didn't know who his father was, or you know, at some point became estranged, and um, and so LeBron didn't have the opportunity to have a complete holding environment, you know. Yeah, um, and, and his mother was, in fact, was 16 years old. Um, you know, so she wasn't able to complete high school before having LeBron, you know, and that really creates a tremendous 
disadvantage uh, economically, you know, to not be able to complete high school, even in the 80s. It's a yeah. big deal. Yeah, we met, you mentioned holding environment. It's just that having that strong anchor, that safety net to know that you can come home and you have stability of someone that is going to have your back where you can be vulnerable with them and show weakness. But in, in this situation, it sounds like when there's a lot of stress, you have to grow up quick. You almost have to take the role of a parent or, or, or a protector in a situation like this. And that that just creates different different values and um, causes different stress and causes you to, and we, we don't, I don't know the, the details, but when you, when you come from a single parent household with a parent who's, who's a teenage mom, it's more difficult to have those attachments, those strong attachments that are so important to growing up, to have a, a male figure in the home, um, to have stability, to have people you can model appropriate behaviors off of, and just to know that you're connected with someone and, and they have your back. Because yeah, the world's yeah, scary, no, but if you can come back is. home and you have someone that you know has your back, that's that's comforting. You can challenge yourself out. In even the real better world if you have if you two, come back home. You know, exactly. Even, even better if you have two, two, three, four. You know, a whole a whole tribe. You know, why not? I mean, it's great to have that that support when you come home, but you know, it's it's hard when you don't have that there, or you know, when you you don't know if you know it's going to be there, um, and. You know, I'll say, I, you know, I, I had a young mom, you know, my mom was 19 when I was born. And, you know, even though her family did support her and, you know, she did, she'd have assistance uh, in, in different ways, we struggled, you know, um, she struggled, you know, she had to make a lot of sacrifices of her, you know, she was still a kid, you know, mm-hmm. and um, and she actually was a suburban kind of sheltered gal, you know, from kind of a middle class family, more like like MJ, you know. So, you know, it was tough. And I think about LeBron, and this is one thing that that may resonate between our our experiences as as young boys who grew up with teenage moms, is you know, at a certain point um, when I was probably like four or five, Tori. In many ways, I felt like I had to protect her, you know, like in many ways, I remember, you know, I have memories from being that that age, Um, you know, as early as, like I said, five years old and, um, you know, witnessing things happen in the home, you know, that were very disruptive and uh, and and really, you know, fearing for her safety and and really feeling like I needed to protect her, you know, and, and doing things actively to protect her, you know, and, and the fear that I had, the butterflies, you know, the um, the pain, just in kind of knowing that I couldn't be there to protect her the way that I wanted to, you know, because I was a small person yeah, at that you time. You didn't have the tools at mm-hmm. five years old. No, that's, that's a no, tough situation. Man. It is. And you feel, you know, and, and we've talked about this before, you know, children, um, they're just as protective as, uh, of their, their, their parents emotionally. Mm-hmm. A child depends on, on their, their mom and their dad. I mean, they have, you know, that's, that is their entire existence for a period of time. So mm-hmm. without you, 
their whole world would sort of collapse around them, or so they would feel, you know. Um, that's the mind of a child, that concrete, you know, operational stage of thinking, um, but, you know, in which they're in recognition of the two most important figures of their holding environment, right? This is a, it's a very deep, impassioned, impassioned experience uh, that between uh, a child and a parent. And when there's this imbalance in terms of who is supposed to be protecting who and, you know, and, and where your, your safety is, where your security is, yeah. where, there's no safety where your now. holding environment really is, that is something that's going to have a strong influence on a child's sense of who they are and, you know, where they want to be in life. Mm -hmm. right? And yeah, what, what are your values? So in, with, in the LeBron James story, and I appreciate you, sh you sharing your, your own story. Um, he's someone who had to grow up fast. And not only that, um, by the time he got to what junior high, He's in the national spotlight because of his ability to play basketball and it kind of skyrockets from there. So not only having to grow up fast in a home environment and you're growing up fast, that doesn't mean you know who you are. It just means you have to take on certain roles, as you mentioned, as, as like a protector, um, as a, you're a, like, you have to pretend to be like the, the, the rock and the anchor at that time, even though you, you don't know who you are yet. And it's, it's not normal for someone to know who they are at 10 years old. And then you, he goes through high school and he's this phenom, like we've never seen before growing up around the internet age, um, not quite the social media age. And then another difference between him and Michael Jordan is LeBron goes straight to the, the NBA and gets drafted number one overall by not the best organiz run organization, the Cleveland Cavaliers. Um, and we talked about how Michael Jordan went to North Carolina, one of the best college basketball programs under one of the best college basketball coaches at best assistant coaches, best facilities and was groomed and was playing with James Worthy and Sam Perkins and other future great NBA players and had those three years to kind of grow into his basketball self into his, who he is versus LeBron has this childhood and then goes straight to the Cleveland Cavaliers organization. And, and he's pretty much handed the throne at that point in the NBA. I mean, Kobe Bryant's doing his thing, but the LeBron, chosen one. Exactly. The chosen one tattooed on his back, the sports center commercials with the King throne. I mean, how do you, how do you lot. figure out who you are? It's a lot. No, it's, 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 yeah, it's why he was a, he was a phenom, uh, a savant, you know, almost like a Doogie Howser. Uh, if anybody remembers that, that show, uh, that reference from the eighties. Yeah. Of, of basketball, of, of sports, you know, I mean, it was just like, who's this kid? He was like 15, 16 years old, grow man's body, you know, jumping out the gym, you know, he's obviously winning on a high level, winning state championships, just running the table. And it's like, you know, you, you saw the eye test, you know, was there from day one. And where's this guy from? Who is he? You know, it's like, he has a single mom. He doesn't, you know, he, he, he kind of try to figure out, okay, well, how is she connected? Some kind of like uh, relationship that he had, I guess, with maybe his uh, his coach in high school, and he had a, you know, some good, some really mentors. Uh, obviously, some really great friendships. You know, guys that you know he's still friends with 
to this day, but it, it's just not the traditional story. I mean, it's just hard to piece together exactly how we got to this point. Um, don't know anything about his dad. You know, I, I'm, I'm not sure that his mom was a, a tremendous athlete. Um, it's not the, the Steph Curry story, for example, right? Mm -hmm. um, it's like, wow. And then you, you realize, hey, he just kind of had this really clear path to the NBA, as you described. Whereas MJ, you know, in contrast, he had to, to scratch and claw even at the high school level, right? So he was building resilience all along the way, shaping and molding this and, you know, chiseling this, you know, this stone character strengths, you know, in terms of going into the NBA rock mm -hmm. solid and ready to just kind of like, and, and you know, take that, over. And that's the thing, because he had this strong foundation at home with his strong, his parents, his two-parent household, yeah. a strong nucleus family. So he could put all his focus into basketball. And that's what he ended up doing. And he did continued because he had that strong holding environment. It was easier for him to create that resilience, to develop that resilience early on. Yeah. Yeah. And we called, we kind of referred to MJ as like the, the blue collar athlete, you know, the hard hat guy. Mm -hmm. And I would say LeBron's almost like more of the white collar athlete, right? I mean, he's like this guy that, um, you know, aside from being the, the mogul, you know, multi-level mogul even while still on the court playing um it's also this other thing man where he sort of really kind of you know is the whole like started from the bottom now we're here you know kind of story where he just kind of on a on a prayer not i mean obviously he works just as hard you know mm -hmm. uh as any as any guy out there um he's probably the hardest working guy usually mm -hmm. on his team but, you know, it's sort of like he didn't, again, have that traditional path, right? You know, it wasn't about the ethics and the virtues and, and the, you know, resilience factors and, and all of that. I mean, eventually he did have to go through things that I think he needed to go through in order to become a champion. He kind of had to but, figure it out piecemeal along the way. But, but his story is a survival story, man. You know, um, he he became who he was largely because he had to fend for himself. He had to fend for himself. He didn't have uh, a father to really show him the way and, and show him how to be a man. And, uh, and he didn't have, you know, frankly, a, a wise and sort of like older, um, you know, established mother that could really parent him alongside his, his father, right? in a way that really was going to, to create a, a framework and scaffold of values for him to, you know, emulate. Um, like you said, he had to piece it together, you know, just figure it out. I think it was, yeah. if you were going to identify his holding environment, it would be his, him and his friends, his high school friends. And it's worked out well for him, but they were all the same age trying to figure out along the way. That's definitely his holding environment now, but I think that's one of the reasons why it maybe took so long for him to to become an NBA champion for him to granted it really take that long, but it took him, I think if you look at his career, it took him joining forces with Dwayne Wade and, and learning under 
under him, someone who had already won a championship and, and maybe having one transitional year with D Wade. We all know the 2011 NBA finals against the Mavericks. LeBron didn't, didn't show up, wasn't there, wasn't, didn't take over the alpha position for the heat that first year. And they lost because of that. And then the following year he becomes the alpha and the rest is history. And he, he went through one of the best stretches an NBA we've ever seen with an NBA player starting in 2012. And it, it took him playing alongside another alpha Dwayne Wade, another champion and learning those things before he was able to, to grasp it himself um, versus MJ. Well, it was, kind of, mm-hmm. it was about finding his voice. Mm-hmm. It was about finding his voice. Okay. It was about finding his own voice and in, it, it really, the, the the importance of the relationship with Dwayne Wade is, as you pointed out, Dwayne was an alpha dog, but he was not only an alpha dog, but he was a guy that, like MJ, you know, sort of already knew who he was. And he, by kind of... He already had to fight back, his way, being, coming from a small school in Marquette, not being highly talented out of high school. Exactly. Exactly, man. And And so when he essentially took a step back, right, that gave LeBron the confidence that he needed, right, to take over and become a champion. And I really think that largely that Dallas loss in, uh, in 2011 was because on that team, the transition had not been, been made quite yet. LeBron was not quite the alpha on that team that he needed to be in order for that team to be successful. He hadn't captured that identity. And obviously MJ, you know, had, had been that guy from day one. And, you know, we, we see now, though, when we kind of peel back the layers and really look deeply into this, how a guy like LeBron became the guy that he was or he is and a guy like MJ becomes who, who, who he was. Because, you know, MJ is more about me right? A very sort of more egotistical path. Now it was, you know, tremendous success, right? But it was about more self-driven or self-serving self-serving. You're right. He was motivated by others for sure. His teammates, you know, the fans, but self-serving and his whole life was self-serving, right? His parents, it was all about him, right? It was all about giving to him and his experience he wasn't piecing anything together. Yeah, it, was it was all about was being given. Here's the game plan. If you work hard, you will have it. Whatever success yeah. you want, if you work hard, you will gain that success. That was you will gain that mentality. success. Yeah. But LeBron had to he had to survive, right? In order to survive, he had to build a team and a network and create that for himself, right? And a very different process. Uh, he had to he had to take a lot. You know, he had to take a lot. LeBron, I'm sure, as a child, and I, I know uh, from my own personal experience, had to take and accept a lot of things that he didn't necessarily want to have to take. And, you know, when you're hustling, when you're trying to survive, you're hustling. You know, it's the hustle and the flow. And in that type of circumstance, you know, you do what you have to do. But you develop a mentality that nothing's really being given to you. And that's an insecurity. It, you know, it's the, it creates tremendous insecurity. And I think it's really difficult to thrive and to, to know who you are 
under those kind of circumstances, right? Yeah. So it took time for him. Yeah. You can think about it this way. I think you mentioned this is kind of searching to figure out who you are, what is your identity. And for LeBron, obviously, once he got to a certain age, he was able to excel in the basketball court. That became his identity. I'm a basketball player. I'm, that's how I'm getting validation because a lot of times if you don't have that stable environment, you're always searching for who you are and, and you develop who you are based off how much praise or validation you get from someone else. So you become a basketball player because people are cheering you on when you play basketball. So he becomes this basketball player because he in part likes the validation he's getting. He likes the security of that validation, that praise. It gets to a point along the line of when he's in the NBA that he realizes I'm more than a basketball player. I'm more than an athlete. So it's almost like you try, everyone tries on different hats when you're a kid and you figure out what hat eventually fits. For him, he had the basketball hat on for a long time and he was doing that. And then he was like, he did the decision. I was like, oh, I'm going to win six, not six, not seven championships because he's comparing himself to other former great basketball players. And then he comes to a realization, well, I'm more than just a basketball player and I'm not going to define myself by six or seven championships. I'm going to take this basketball player hat off and I'm going to put on more than an athlete hat because I'm more than an athlete. So I'm going to invest in a school. I'm going to be a spokesperson for social causes. And that was his maturation. He, he kind of, I think finally figured out who he truly was after who that was. first, yes, he, first yes, year he in Miami. Yes, he did. Yes, he did. Because he realized that who he was, right, was based on a collective community, the collective community that he built around himself, right, to survive. Mm-hmm. The holding environment. It wasn't like MJ, a traditional two-parent household where everything is given. Mm-hmm. You know, well, for, he had and, to create his exactly. own. Exactly. For, for MJ, all he, all he needed to do to, to reassure his identity was win at basketball, win a championship, beat people, not even beat, beat them at basketball, but beat them at horse after practice, beat them at cards on the bus, beat them at golf. He just had to win, and that reinforces identity as a winner a competitor um, but for Le- LeBron James and for himself, for who he is, it's more than just winning, winning a championship. Isn't going to reinforce his identity because he, it's not fulfilling for him just to win, just to be the ultimate competitor. Cause it's never more been about that. that has it? Exactly. It's never been about him. So that's one of the reasons why you see him post his highlights on Instagram. Obviously he's building up his brand, but garnering some validation from other people and he's posting so, uh, other things, social commentary on Instagram. He's still searching for that validation because for him, it, it still needs to come to a certain extent from outside himself because just winning isn't going to do it for him. Like for MJ winning is the only thing that did it for him. And like we mentioned before, like at some point, maybe that's not going to be fulfilling because you're not going to be able to, to win all the time. But for LeBron, it's, it's more than just winning. It needs to come from elsewhere. And that's why he's, over time, spread out his interest into different things and has become very successful off the court. Well, I, I think, I think it, it's, it's, it's a different take on winning. You know, I think it's, it's, it's the win that occurs when everyone wins you know yeah it's like uh, it's winning a collective win outside of a competition like michael jordan was like winning a competition competing and winning lebron is just it's like winning overall it's just winning yeah. life winning yeah, life every, yeah. if you would yeah no exactly man because you know you think about it like okay so in the mj era i'm charles barkley i'm carl malone i'm clyde drexler 
you know, I'm, these, I'm all these guys that, you know, are now in, in this sort of class of just, you know, uh, guys who didn't have a chance because of MJ, right? Rather than being, you know, kind of thought of, frankly, in disgrace, like, why can't we all have our own legacies? Like, why can't we all have our own brands? Um, why can't we all win? And, you know, and that's kind of what is interesting about this era is we might have have had the first era or, or sort of developing the first period of basketball where you actually kind of have like three, three kings, right? Uh, you have KD, Steph, and LeBron. And I'd say since 20, probably 15, that's kind of what it's been, right? Um, and, and that's because it's been enabled for many guys, you know, different people to win, mm -hmm. right? Um, it's not just one king. It's not yeah. just two. And the, I think, like, everyone's getting a piece of that pie, that player empowerment. There's so much more money to be made off the court. Like, you look at the top 10 uh, Forbes athletes of this year here in 2019, you got Russell Westbrook and James Harden in the top 10 right there, um, or just outside the top 10. You got, and you got, you think of, like, Russell Westbrook, and some people may think of oh, fashion icon or like James Harden. Um, these guys are becoming not only known for their play, even though they're not champions, but they're household names because of not only their, not only their play and, and ma large majority of their play, but also their fashion off the court. You have PJ Tucker, who is, he's a uh, bring your lunch pail to work kind of guy, good rebounder, good defensive guy, nothing special on the basketball court, but he's the sneaker king. Like he's known for his sneakers and you'll see him pop up on social media all the time. He's made a name for himself for that. You have all these NBA athletes specifically and other athletes that you're able to, to create your brand and yeah, LeBron's the face of that right now. He's the face of it. He is the face of the athlete empowerment movement, man. And you could look at uh, Federer was number one on that list. And I think Ronaldo and Messi are still up there in the top three cracking a hundred million per year. Oh yeah. Um, well, those are the big money sports for sure. Um, the individuals. But, uh, and, yeah. and individual sports, you know, so, you know, less, you're not having to carve up the pie, but i tell you what, man, you mentioned, you know, all these guys and, and what, what to me, before you went into tennis, um, every guy you had mentioned five names in a row, black men, right? Many of the athletes that we talk about time and time again on this show, that we present to our, our, our viewers and our listeners and we highlight our men of color and, you know, people who off the court, off the, the field, um, you know, outside of the gym, outside of the locker room are human beings just like you and me. You know, people that have families, they have wives, husbands, children and they have brothers and sisters mothers and fathers grandparents cousins and they have nieces and nephews neighbors pets you know pets dogs cats the whole nine um you know they they have teachers they have pastors they have the butcher down the street or the the barber right I mean, we it, it's just things that are just kind of, you know, going to be present in all human. communities. We're all humans, right? These guys 
are, yes, they're athletes. They're, they entertain us. Um, they're on TV, so it's like, wow, you know, they have all this money and they live these extraordinary lives. And, you know, we see that side, but what we don't see is that at the end of the day, they're people just like you and me. Yeah. And so when they go home after the game, they go home to their families, you know, and, and they're accountable to these people, right? I mean, they're, they're accountable to their children when they ask about things like what happened in Minneapolis, you know, with Mr. Lloyd and, um, and why is there a police officer, you know, someone that's supposed to be protecting and, and, you know, and serving our community, daddy, why would that person have his knee on that other person's neck? You know, at five years old, children don't really see color. You know, they're just seeing a man in a uniform uh, and what he represents or supposed to represent murdering a detained, I guess, potential suspect on the street in broad daylight right next to uh, a police cruiser that says Minneapolis police with dozens of citizens standing around commenting on what was happening in, in some cases begging and pleading making observations about the individual he's flat on his stomach in handcuffs and it, it seems to me that there were a lot of observable signs of excessive force even before the eight minutes elapsed you know between the time that the officer apparently applied this aggressive maneuver which we've come to, to realize was not a lawful police maneuver or tactic in terms of detaining a suspect but from the time that commenced until the time that the uh, alleged suspect deceased, that eight-minute period, apparently there were many, many signs along the way that this person was having some sort of medical crisis. I guess, obviously, it's unclear what happened. You got to get the autopsy. It, you know, it's, I've heard people say, for example, white people uh, say that, well, you know, he could have died from sort of natural causes, like what if he had a heart attack because maybe he was withdrawing from a narcotic. This is what they, you know, people are suspecting may have happened. And that as a result, maybe even, you know, slight pressure could have precipitated some other medical event. I think anything is possible. What we really want to focus on the most, however, is on what, like that, the mind of that five-year-old, right? Those eyes, those innocent eyes. Just what the optics, what, 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 just take a step back. You know, we don't have to go too deep into the details quite yet. We'll get there. Just take a step back for a minute, okay? What do you see? Well, this kid sees a man in a uniform sworn to protect and serve this community with a person in handcuffs detained on his stomach in really the most vulnerable position imaginable. And it's very clear that there is force being applied to the back of that man's neck. And along with the friction of the pavement beneath mm. his face, right? Just that pressure, there's gonna be asphyxiation. I mean, there's just, uh, there's no, uh, that's just, this is, um, 
Yeah, cut off the blood supply, cut off the air supply. Like you take a knee, take a knee right now, and you put all the pressure. Like your whole weight can go on that knee and on the nape of someone's neck, the side of someone's neck. Bad look. It's a a really bad look. It's just a really bad look. Murder. It's murder. Yeah, it's a bad look. Um, It's horrible. It's one man killing another man. And and here's the thing: a bunch of other police officers watching, not doing much of anything. What it comes down to is this. If you can't look at what happened, no matter who you are, no matter where you're from, okay, and this is just real, if you can't look at that from a distance and start the conversation with what I just witnessed was wrong, then you may in fact be a racist. And this is something that I think that you know, American society uh, and really the whole world really needs to open their eyes to. Um, racism is not about black and white. And even though some folks may believe on some le- level that it is, you know, about things like, you know, which historical tribe is better than, you know, another one or, you know, about which religion is better, you know, and more, more right, you know, which... Uh, which economy it makes the most sense, which political system is, you know, the most upright. It's really actually just comes down to, to one word, humanity. That's what race comes down to is, is just humanity. And the fact that while we all have tremendous differences as individuals and as, you know, communities and within communities and across communities that in fact we really are all the same you know we're all one people uh and we have some really great things in common as well as some you know tremendous and extraordinary differences and it's fine right it's it's all beautiful uh, it all just makes us, I think, a diverse and extraordinary group of individuals. Now, I think when you understand that and you can appreciate that, it then becomes, I think, quite simple of a test to just take a step back, you know, put you know, any sort of prejudices you may have about any particular person and just watch what happened uh, and ask yourself, is this right or wrong? You know, is, is this right? You know, is this the right thing? And if, if you have to question that, um, you know, I think you have to really examine your soul, your spirit, you know, and, um, you know, take a closer look. I think you're right. It's all about being questioning yourself questioning your gut reactions, your, your internal feelings, that internal monologue you have, those thoughts you have when you encounter someone that you perceive is different than you. Ask yourself why, like, why am I, why am I having this reaction? Why am I having this, this thought? Explore that, explore what is making you treat someone differently. Is it because of their race? Is it because of their gender? Is it because of something that you're bringing to the table and not them? 
question yourself. This is what awareness is all about. And I think what hopefully all of these different tragedies ultimately teach us is that in order to, uh, to I think, move beyond racism, we're going to have to to pass the mantle, pass the torch um, of humanity beyond just awareness, right? And into acceptance, you know, and into embracing who we are. And, and, and we talk about this a lot, Tori. How does one go from awareness to acceptance? The way that this happens, the pathway is through confidence, right? Is through confidence. You learn to be confident in who you are and what you are and self-assured. You know, you, you have, those values are clear, right? Confidence. Mm-hmm. And confidence is a product of communication, yep. right? Using your voice. Exactly. And that's what Using me and you are doing right now. We've had these conversations. Since I've known you, yeah. we've had these conversations. And these aren't easy conversations to have. I mean, no. to be frank, I think with both our personalities, it's easy to have the conversation. Like me and you, we can have these conversations fairly easy. But they're difficult conversations. Uh, we come from totally different backgrounds. We look different. and But, but we have conversations about these, these things. And, and through these conversations, I've become more confident in my thoughts on things and my views and I've un- unlocked my own implicit biases, my own maybe racist thinking through our conversation. So the, the way to develop confidence and awareness and acceptance and who you are is, is talking about these difficult subjects with individuals who share or who come from different backgrounds, who look different than you, who think different than you. Uh, that's important. Talk about it, explore it investigate it and then through that continue to take more and more action to right these wrongs and 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 to continue the momentum that we see all these professional athletes doing of of trying to create equality and justice there's no measure there's no reliable measure that suggests that one race is superior to any other race of people as it relates to the ability to achieve in life and given mm-hmm. opportunities, yep. make the most of the opportunities. Exactly. You know, it's, you've seen it time and time again, you know, and, and I think that's why I love sports because it's a kind of an equal opportunity employer, you know, much like the military. Like if you're, it's just based on your greatness, not your, your race or your, mm-hmm. you know, your background. And so it's fair, you know, it's a, it's a meritocracy in many ways or at least as close to it as we have. Yep. That's big. You know, it, it's, it's, it shows you how um, in, in certain microcosms, in certain ways, what the world could be like if race wasn't like the primary factor in how we, you know, size things up. Absolutely. I think we should get into talking about privilege too, because that's another way of kind of being covertly racist is to not acknowledge your privileges. Like someone has white privilege, the fact. But that you know what? Ig- you're go ignorance. There, I want you to go there, but if you go there, then you know what? I'm gonna have to. There's a I'm lot of layers to, to that. Well, a lot of layers to it because I think that privilege. there's a problem. There's a problem. I was gonna say I don't. I what I don't like is how white America has co-opted the term privilege. 
as if privilege belongs to you know a group of people Mm-mm. when in fact privilege is something that is really i would say if you if you had to look at let's say let's say four measures of of a human right in terms of their identity okay you look at their economic situation which includes finances and where you live and all that right you you would say let's say your ethnicity your ethnicity okay that's like literally your family background like where mm-hmm. you actually migrated like from cultural yeah. background culture well not just cultural but geographic you know cultural geographic heritage. and cultural yeah it's like geographic and cultural heritage yes geographic and cultural heritage and then you know i would say probably also you could say you know someone's language and like specifically where they live right you know because i feel like for example blacks in florida are very very different culturally and sort of in their disposition and tone of their values than blacks from new york or blacks from mm-hmm. la you know just very different and, and whites you know the same way um so let's just take those three actually if we take those three i would say that honestly the thing that probably divides people the Gender. most those three okay is really probably the economics you know like in other words Mm -hmm. if you are strong economically um by comparison to your cohort your peers whatever you're probably privileged you know what i mean Mm -hmm. even if you're black latino you know asian white whatever if you have money and you live in a nice community or you know with, with nice schools and you know, we're with, with, we're safe. Yeah. You're okay. Yeah, I agree. I, I, I saw this video the other day. It was this, it was like the, at this camp, I think this, some sort of religious camp and the, the, the coach or the mentor had everyone line up in a line, all these teenagers. And he's like, I want you guys to race for this $100 bill. And he was like, all right, if you can say yes to this question, you take two steps forward. So his questions were like, if you grew up in a two-parent household, take two steps forward. If you grew up in a household where at least one parent had a steady full-time job, take two steps forward. If you are white, take two steps forward. If you are just other, other different types of privileges that weren't just focused on race, but all these, like you said, all these other things like economic stability in the home, you essentially you get a head start to get that $100 versus the individuals who didn't grow up with that stability, didn't grow up, grew up in a low income area. So it, it is more than just white privilege. It's, I mean, you could even break it down to be like, we have cognitive privilege. Like we're not, we have physical privilege. We're not handicapped by any means. Like there's so many different layers to it. Yeah. That's so true. And you can't that's just so simplify it. You can't just boil it down to black versus white, but it's part of it. It is, and it's part of it because, you know, that's really the story of this country. Um, this country was established, like the, the economics of this country, right, on just about every level was built on the backs of blacks and whites, right? Mm-hmm. We were even side by side together even during the Civil War. On both sides, you know? and, and that dates back mm-hmm. to day one. Like someone always got the short end into the stick. But it's it's deep, and 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 if you think about it, man, like one of the most complex stories of within the story of 
American history is the one of, you know, the transition of the black community from slave to, you know, sort of like a partial citizen to a full fledged citizen, right? And, and just like sort of on one hand, how blacks have enlarged in many ways, um, I think come a long way and overcome quite a bit uh, in terms of the trauma of, of, a, of you know, being enslaved and, and the trauma of, of you know, not having the same rights, equal social and political rights. But I also see a community of people that were devastated and kind of remain devastated and devastated by devastation. I just mean in terms of hope, you know, like feeling as if, you know, they, when, you, when we're talking about looking around, right, you're talking about like, you know, your family, your, your neighborhood, your, you know, your, 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 your community, which would include like, obviously your extended family, your school, you know, the city in which you live. Like, if you've ever grown up in the hood or spent any time in the hood and actually like live there and like that was your situation, like there's not a lot of, of hope in those communities, mm-hmm. right? I mean, I remember, you know, growing up in, in Baltimore, I was very fortunate. I was privileged because, you know, I, I did well enough in school that I was able to get into magnet programs, which were public, but they were private, right? Because I had a, you know, small class size, the better resources, you know, better teachers. Um, but in other public schools in Baltimore, I know that the dropout rate in high school, at the high school level was 50%. I know that the, uh, there were many, many schools, even at the high school level, that were without air conditioning units, hmm. that were without, like, in some cases, you know, went periods without heat, you know, because they didn't have the, the money to afford to fix that. Um, that, that had textbooks that were, you know, 10, 20, in some cases, even 30 years old. And the, this, the general, you can imagine, conditions of the schools themselves were horrible to the extent that, like, you, you know, you, kids are forced to be in school, right? You yeah, have to how, be in school. How is that conducive I, to, to want to learn? Like, yeah, exactly. A lot of these people it, don't even want to learn. And, you know, these like teachers are You can't read it. Teachers aren't invested. The teachers aren't getting paid, you know, and, and, you know, not only that, but because of the fact that they're, there is, there's probably a, a deficiency in parenting, certainly not in, I would say most families, but in enough families because of, you know, instability uh, due to economics within the family. You know, you don't, when you don't have a financially stable family, you know, you're going to have instability. You might have, you know, folks that aren't staying together in terms of the, that relationship or that, that marriage and the kids are going to suffer. Yeah. Um, and these things are, are going to have a huge impact on, on that kid's experience. So now both home and school are not very stable places. Absolutely. And, places. and to piggyback onto that, what is extremely valuable, and we've talked about this before, is reinforcing, rewarding good behaviors, rewarding doing well in school, rewarding pro-social behaviors. And if you don't have teachers that are invested in their students and 
reinforcing like doing your homework and doing well in school and and behaving well in class and then you don't have a household reinforcing that you don't have a society reinforcing that by investing in the schools and investing in the communities and you live in an urban area or you live in any area that is decrepit and not taken care of you do lose hope and and what happens when you lose hope you you either you get disheartened and you just oh well maybe there's a little internalized racism with regards to that like what's the point i don't deserve this or maybe it it goes the other way and what am i to do and that could lead to violence and that could lead to kind of just revolting and carving your own path well i here's here's what i would say um let me be very clear about this having been a person that lived has lived in in black communities that were poor black communities that were middle class even um you know i spent time in in black communities that were, were wealthy like i mean black people generally across the board even in the ghettos are a peaceful group of people like as like by and large really they are very they're people that really prefer peace you know uh and are very uh fun loving and um very lively if you've ever been to a black church before right a uh, typical black church anywhere you know in in, in the community in, in, a, in an urban community people are in there having a good time <laughs> i mean mm-hmm. you know they're laughing and, and they're shouting and they're happy to be there and it's just how black people like to get down how they like to praise um, and give praise to what they consider to be, you know, their their creator and, and mm-hmm. the, you know the entity that you know from which they pull strength. Um, yeah, and and that is a good glimpse, a very interesting insight when you go to a black church into like the heart of the black community. And so it's a strong, you see gang strong violence, community. Very well, very strong, very strong, but also uh, I would say humble i would say you know a group of people that are you know have a certain virtue like a virtue of you know certainly resilience but through that resilience and you know the the legacy of sacrifice i think you have genuinely good people that want to do the right thing you know Mm -hmm. just want to do the right things um but i also see that because of the the really, really, really unfortunate economic situations in a lot of these communities, coupled with, I think, the lack of sort of ladders and opportunities to get out of those communities. You know, so it's almost like think about white rural communities, right? Um, or you know, some of these white, let's say, lower income communities, even in even urban areas where, you know, the the plant shuts down. Uh, the factory shuts down, so there's not the typical complement of jobs. Folks graduating from high school, and they're not able to get the same opportunity that their parents had, you know, their uncles had, and they just kind of become more wayward. You know, they 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 oftentimes become even depressed, and they might turn to drugs. They might, I mean, this opioid crisis, you know, was really a crisis that largely affected. And I say opioid, I should say, you know, the heroines the prescription narcotics that becomes a way out largely affected the white communities you know this these was not an epidemic that affected blacks in the same way i mean you know blacks certainly have had their drug epidemics that have been well documented 
But it just kind of goes to show you that when you have economic sort of you know, setbacks, how communities, irrespective of race, can really be affected in a major way. What's also interesting about that opioid crisis that gained so much traction is that it really didn't have the same kind of stigma or stain on young white men and women who were affected by that, the way that, for example, the crack epidemic did in terms of really tarnishing, I think, the reputation, the image of young black males in the 80s. Um, you know, and, and you think about these things, and these are the kinds of things that really are the mechanisms of racism. Yeah, it's the generalizations from one specific community to the next. Like, you're right, like you get, oh, that's, they're just rednecks. They're just white trash. That doesn't affect other groups of, of white individuals as much as like these sweeping generalizations people have of, of African-Americans and of black communities. It comes down to people can no longer be silent, Tori. That's what it is, man. People have been silent for far too long. People on all sides, blacks, obviously, you know, uh, various other groups, you know, the groups we've talked about, but, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go there. I'm going to take it a little bit further, man. And I'm going to say there are a lot of whites out here that, you know, the first ones to stand up and say, I'm not a racist. But when they're having conversations behind closed doors with white friends who may be racist or who are racist, uh, they, they're silent. You know, they, yep. they would prefer just not to engage. And then you'll hear things like, well, I just like to, you know, I don't like to take sides. Yep. Um, oh, well, that's him. He doesn't know any better. Yeah, no, I mean, yeah. They, oh, they, I see this in my own family. I see this with, with and, and my man, own this friends. is the kind of thing. This, the only way that oh, race joking. is it's a joke. truly going to, to, to be resolved is when pe- we, people have to start using their voice, right? We, we have to start speaking up and speaking out and not with hate. The problem with these protests mm-hmm. is yeah. that it, it just incites more confusion, more hatred. It can reinforce that, the, more violence. The, the stigma that's already there for certain individuals. It's not necessary. It's not. It's, that's what I realized, man. That's what 40 years has taught me is that it really actually is not necessary to get emotional and to be hateful, to, to have animosity, even when you see these horrific acts like yeah. what happened to Mr. Lloyd in, in Minneapolis. Like, honestly, here's what we need. I need for... Everyone who says they are not a racist, right, to be willing to stand up and say in any circle that what happened to Mr. Lloyd was wrong. If you can't say that, where do we begin? Exactly. So, but but I think the hard part is what's the alternative? Like, I've seen, saw those videos about Tupac 20 years ago talking about how. Like we've been asking politely for years to have equal opportunity. At some point, we can't ask anymore. We're going to demand. And if, if those demands don't work, then it's going to turn to violence. So what are the alternatives? There's many layers to the solution, but what is the solution? It's, it's difficult to think about. Like I think at, at an individual level, you're right. It starts with awareness. You have to first be aware of your privilege 
whether it's economic privilege, cognitive privilege, the, the fact that you grew up in a two-parent household privilege, white privilege, gender privilege, what have you. Be aware of your privileges. Be aware of your biases. Be aware of everyone has implicit biases. Be aware of your biases. And be aware of maybe your own prejudices and your own past things that you did when you discriminated against someone else. Be aware of the people around you. Be aware when someone, a friend or family member, does something racist, makes a racist joke. The first step is to be aware. Absolutely. No, that's exactly, that's exactly right. You have to be aware. And you're right, too, man. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a bifold awareness, right? It's, 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 a, it's two eyes, right? It's aware of yourself, right? And also awareness of others, right? And their experience, exactly. right? And what they go through. That's diff- how it's different. It's just different. It's not better or worse, necessarily, mm-hmm. But it is different. It has to start within you. It's awareness, but it's also like mindfulness. Like we talked about being aware of, you have these emotions that come up inside you in certain instances, in certain moments, when you interact with someone that looks differently than you, maybe you do have these internal feelings that you can't quite put into words initially, but the goal would be to be mindful of that and investigate that. What is that feeling I'm having? Put it, put thoughts to it and then kind of dive deeper and try to really understand like what's going on? Is this me being biased? Is this me being having a racist thought? Why am I feeling this? Why am I having these thoughts? Why, why did I just do something? Like why, when I went through this neighborhood, why did I lock my car doors or roll up my windows? Like just questioning certain simple actions like that. Why did I pat my back pocket and make sure my wallet's still there when I walk down this certain street? Like, why am I doing all these things? It starts with like just this investigation of your own thoughts and feelings, this ability to be mindful, this ability to be more self-aware. Yeah, you're right, man. And um, I, and I, I think that does come with time. You know, it's not something that can happen overnight at all. You know, it really has to be a thing that you kind of commit to every day. You have a process. You remind yourself. You, you know, you really kind of almost like learning something new, like a new skill, mm-hmm. you know, you just really think about it every day and, and you put, put effort into yeah. it. Um, and then I think what happens over time as the confidence improves is you start using that awareness to gain acceptance, right? Self-acceptance, mm-hmm. uh, you know, acceptance also of the circumstances in which you both were raised in Mm -hmm. and have right now. Yeah. We've mentioned before, like inherently there is this like tribalistic, like innate biological thing inside of us that is a protective mechanism where we we're we're mammals at the end of the day. and, And the goal is to be safe and procreate. So there is these biological frameworks inside of us to try to, to at all times, try to, be safe and be aware of certain dangers. Um, we're really good at pattern recognition and just knowing that those defenses, those innate biological systems inside of us can be totally exaggerated and reinforced in the, the wrong way, reinforced by our parents, reinforced by our, our communities, reinforced by social media to reinforce racism, 
reinforce those implicit biases and turn them into racism. And eventually over time, those like initial weird feelings and initial maybe prejudicial or discriminatory thoughts we have turn into racist actions. And our whole entire society, like you mentioned before, the United States was built through slavery and through racism and it's in our institutions. So this stuff is constantly being reinforced. And the first step is we have to kind of unpeel all these layers and just be aware of it. Um, and that takes time, like you said. And then after awareness comes action. Like you have to eventually yeah. take action to stifle yeah. the racism that you're, you see within yourself and you see within your family and your friends. And then also within society and within these institutions because it's two layers. There's the individual interactions you have with people, but there's also these systemic institutions that have prejudices and, and racism built within them. Yeah, so many different layers. And you pointed out one of them that I think, man, we, we have to highlight. We have to highlight it because it's such an important mechanism and one that I think has gone for far too long, uh, has gone understated, is the influence of the, the media, you know, the media. Social media on, on one level, but I just really mean like multi-media, like mass media, like TV networks, mm -hmm. like news outlets, like, listen, there's a difference between analysis and reporting, okay? This is one thing I learned as an intelligence officer in, in you know, serving this country in the United States Air Force is that there's a significant and fundamental functional difference between analysis and reporting. And what the media does and what their role is, what they the role they've established um, in our society is they report what's happening, right? They report on current events, they report on historical events, they're reporters, right? They present the news, but they don't, and they're careful not to bias the reporting and not to necessarily like, you know, try to, you know, I guess, you know, infuse their own personal views uh, into the reporting. That's journalistic integrity. Okay. But now we have to be very, very clear. While they may have, uh, you know, guests that come on the show uh, and call them analysts, right? And they may be people that are subject matter experts in whatever issue that, 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 that news broadcast is reporting on. We have to be very clear that even though the report, the information itself may not be biased, right? The selecting of who is represented on these shows to provide the analysis may in fact be biased and often is, mm -hmm. you know, yeah. it's often a, a sort of a cast of characters that fits, you know, a certain narrative. Now, you know, they will often have the counter narrative uh, analyst in the room, but that person almost uh, invariably uh, outnumbered, mm -hmm. right? And it's very clear that, you know, this team of analysts that you see on these major networks, they're shaping a narrative. I mean, they're having a conversation just like you and me are having, just like we're having with our audience now. And, you know, they're 
we're, we're, we have all these ideas and we're presenting this information, but we're shaping a narrative. Yeah. Right. Shaping a narrative and we're influencing people's attitudes and opinions and perceptions about the information in which they're presenting. Exactly. And we already mentioned everyone has their own biases and we talked about filters. So something happens, it's a, it's a fact, it's something that happened. Then you have a newscaster that has their own biases and their own filter that relays that information to you. And then you, you're taking it in and you have your own biases and your own filter. So it's going through two filters before it even gets to you. And then that's what it is to you. The, I guess, I guess the beauty of social media in some instances, and this was a horrific, tragic event, what happened to, to George Floyd, but you saw exactly what happened in that video. And it's, there's no filter. You just have your own filter to deal with it, but that's, you're not getting a, re, a reporter's not reporting that information to you. You're seeing it. And oftentimes with these social media, these, these things that they show, these horrific things, you're seeing it. And it's only going through your own biases and your own filters. So that removes kind of one of the, one of the layers of bias. And see, Tori, here's the thing I, I need to, I have to say to you, because this is, I'm, I'm really glad that you, you raised that, that, that story about the Minneapolis police department. And the thing that's remarkable about this story and why it's so much different, right. Is because generally speaking, you're right. An image, just a still image of something, can't possibly tell the whole story. But what about what happened before? What happened immediately afterwards? I mean, for all we know with a still image, right? For all we know, this man could have, you know, five frames before that, pulled a knife out on one of these police officers, pulled a, you know, actually had a, a, a firearm himself and fired on one of these guys. And then when you throw that into the picture, it changes everything. Mm -hmm. it, it still doesn't excuse what happened. But you can imagine these police officers would have been scared, would have been shaken up themselves, would have been acting impulsively, would have, it just would have been a lot of chaos. And you can, you, you know, it's sort of when that very first I Can't Breathe story with Eric Gardner in New York City, like, you know, I, what I remember about that story that was so compelling to look at the footage. We have video of, of this as well. A lot of commotion, you know, a lot of chaos. It seemed to be a lot of people just in and around, you know, that space and almost felt like a mob, you know, kind of, of, of vibe to it. And, and I, it seemed like a lot of things happened almost in a, in a, in a, in a state of panic. You know, it was a completely different situation. And again, you don't excuse those police officers what happened it's great that they were held accountable eventually for what happened, but it's like, man, I, it was just a different scene in this particular video, which they had full footage. You see absolutely no resistance on the part of this victim, right? Uh, you see a man that had clearly, you know, let the officers uh, have control of the situation. Um, they had him in cuffs pretty much from the start of the, the video, from what I could tell, you know, after he had been detained. So it didn't appear that there had been any scuffle. The officers were calm. Mr. Lloyd was calm. And then it's sort of like, next thing you know, you have 
this man and on the, the ground, right? Uh, still in handcuffs. But this time, one of the police officers has their, their knee pinned, you know, I mean, think about the back of your neck, right? There's really no particular place. If you think about it, and you remember this, Tori, when we did med school, man, that first year anatomy class, like that is precious real estate. I mean, the neck area mm-hmm. in the front, anteriorly, all posteriorly, everything there, there's nothing here uh, that's just open for mm-hmm. uh, compression. You know, oh, yeah. every, and you compress anything here, you're gone, right? Trachea, you got the, you, you mentioned the carotid, the carotid arteries, the jugular vein, which, you know, obviously is not quite as, as vital as the uh, carotid artery. But, you know, if you compress it long enough, it's going to create significant problems. You know, I mean, you, you know, and then you have these yeah, people, muscles here. That some hold people up the die neck. getting chiropractor work on their necks. They get carotid artery dissections. Oh, man. It's a very sensitive I mean, area. I can't imagine. Here's where we're going. Here, here's what I, I have to say. I mean, how could there be any law enforcement tactic imaginable in which you have you're thinking about preserving someone's life right if that's where you're you know you're having detained you want to bring them in for justice in which any part of your body should be compressing a a suspect who is detained right handcuffed in the neck or several police in the neck area in the neck area there's no i if there's any protocol in this entire country, anywhere, any local police precinct or, or, or you know, any jurisdiction in which there's a tactic that is supposed to be consistent with the proper and appropriate detention of a suspect in which there's compression to the neck area, it has to be thrown out immediately. I mean, it, it, it's, and we need to get physicians involved with maybe doing some investigating around police tactics because that obviously can never happen again. I don't I mean, think either of those moves with Eric Garner case and this most recent case, neither of those tactics or whatever they did are, are, are legal or are police, like police tactics that they've been trained to do. So if we're not using police tactics, what bothers me is why are we even starting the, the conversation with any language or narrative around support of the police officer, mm-hmm. right? Or an excuse. In the commission of whatever he was doing in that moment, whether the detention itself was lawful or not, that's not really the issue. The issue is that he was using tactics that were not lawful in, or in the commission of his role, his, yeah. of his job, which any person, blue collar, white collar, whatever, pink collar, you know, if you have, if you have a profession and you have a set of standards and a code of conduct and a set of professional ethics, you know that when one of your colleagues makes a mistake, you know, in this case, the mistake was the suspect died, uh, that involves uh, any sort of um, negligence related to practices that are outside the scope of training. And we're doctors. We know, we know about this. I mean, you're done. Like, you're, it's it. That's it. No. Like, we're not... We can't protect you. No, you know, part, you have to. We know that you're, you know, 
you're prescribing medicines that you know in these yeah. high doses that no one else exactly in the in the in the profession of psychiatry we're, would ever do. We can't, we so can't you, protect you. So in this case, this Almost. was this was murder, flat out murder. But even if you just look at it as a profession standpoint, excessive use of force, obviously, like if you make the comparison to us being psychiatrists, and someone comes into our office, we're not going to give them like 100 milligrams Thorazine IM right right off the bat. Like, Come no, on. you start with low dose medication and work your way up. You don't just throw the kitchen sink at it. So it's, it's complete negligence, a horrible policing job. And also it's, it looked like murder to me, quite frankly, and he's being charged. So thankfully. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, um, and that's where we need to start the conversation, right? We start the conversation there. And I think we, we don't have the protests we don't have the violence in the streets. We don't have the feeling of an invalidation of an entire nation of people, right? I mean, the black, black people in this country are a nation, you know, not just a, com a community. We've, you know, this, this uh, group of people have been, I mean, they're the salt of the earth in this country. I mean, they've, they have been with this country, building the legacy from the ground up pretty much from day one. You know, absolutely. And this America and the legacy that we all have come to, to grow in love would not be what it is, even close to what it is on any level, if not for the contributions in all aspects of life yeah. from yeah. the black community. A hundred percent, man. And I wanted to touch on like, obviously, this is a horrific, tragic event. And this is happening all the time now it's it's been happening and now we're just we're seeing it because of the cell phone and i think what we can do obviously there's individual racism there's institutionalized racism we have racism within the healthcare systems we have criminal justice systems prison systems education systems political systems so on and so forth like we see it in the healthcare systems all the time like there's so many different layers to it obviously african americans less access to care they have less opportunities to be insured, less employment. And a lot of times employment comes with insurance. That's why Obamacare or the Affordable Care Act has been, been helpful in that regard. But blacks and minority groups in the U.S. experience more illnesses, worse outcomes, and more premature deaths compared to whites. Well, and, and I would say, I don't even know, Tori, you, all those things you're pointing out are right on point. But I don't even know if those are necessarily even true, true mechanisms of racism i think those are mechanisms of perhaps racial insensitivities inequality right and and inequalities and these sort of barriers i would say more of a cultural barrier right just things that it's just more of a communication they're, they're more the results of, of racism versus just racism within themselves exactly but here's but here's but here's where racism actually does creep into medicine Right, what you named, yes, the results, right, the side effects of racism. But what, where racism really creeps in is in the doctor-patient relationship. And in particular, and I've, I saw it on our wards, man. I saw it during our training at the, the hospital psychiatric unit that we trained in, man. I saw some of the hardest core racism right there before my very eyes because what I saw was I saw that because of the fact that this patient population who most frequented this particular community hospital, I saw that because that 
well, I'm not going to say because. I'll just say that the patient population, which primarily consisted of the community around this hospital, was primarily Latino and African American, right? Latino and black. And I saw that the patients in this facility that were admitted to this facility were often treated like animals. I mean, in terms of, you know, when, you know, we, we call it in, in psychiatry, when the patient starts to escalate in, in a, inpatient adult units in hospital settings, when a patient starts to escalate or emergency room settings, we, we say that, that they're, they're becoming agitated, right? They're becoming aggressive, okay? But that's a, really something that you come to expect in, in, in instances when a, a person, for example, is withdrawing from a certain drug or if they, for example, are, are manic, you know, which is a phase of bipolar disorder, or, um, you know, frankly, they're depressed and just very irritable. Like, you can see these things, especially because they're being taken out of you know, their home environment, and in many cases being de- detained against their will, right? Mm-hmm. Um, remind you of something, right? And, and being detained against their will, sometimes it does bring out the, the worst in people, especially people who are sick, you know, and by sick, we mean we're, they're in the acute phase of a serious mental illness, right, a crisis. Um, and I, I, I saw nurses who were trained to be essentially therapeutic specialists, people that should be able to provide a nurturing, supportive environment, literally taking men and women, right? And just from behind, right? You're talking about cho- not chokeholds, but like, you know, headlocks <laughs> from behind, just snatching these guys up and just slamming them onto the ground with, you know, two to three other nurses in tow with chains, and straps to apply to these people's wrists and ankles uh, and then chaining them down to a bed uh, and leaving them in, in a room by themselves in, in some instances for hours. That's a pretty traumatizing experience for, for anyone, mm-hmm. but especially someone who is scared and you know potentially paranoid because they are psychotic as a result of mental illness or they... Um, are confused. You know, a lot of people, times people come, come into these places having been blacked out um, and all of a sudden they're there and they're this place they've, they've never been to before and mm-hmm. they're, just, they're scared. They don't have their families there, but they have to be there, right? Yeah. And, the, the, and so, of course, people are going to get agitated, there. you know, brought there by the police. So you understand how there could be some irritability, but I'll tell you what, man. Um, I also worked at UCLA's Ronald Reagan Hospital down the road from this community hospital where the primary patient population is, I would say, privileged, uh, multi-racial, multi-ethnic, but all relatively upper-middle-class, wealthy folks that have good health insurance. Uh, and, and, and I and saw... health insurance is correlated with what? With having a job in this country, having a job, so yes, a good privilege. job. Yeah, exactly. And and I saw inpatient hospital unit, uh, emergency room setting. Well, let's get this straight first. So, private insurance. UCLA takes a number of medical, so insured patients, but it's medical, which is a 
California's version of the Affordable Care Act to a certain extent, Medi-Cal, Medicare. Yeah, public, public health insurance. Yeah. Reagan takes a certain percentage, but not a lot, mostly private insurance. And you get private insurance when you have a good paying job. And versus the community hospital usually takes uninsured and Medicare. Uninsured and, and insurance. public insurance. And in fact, exclusively, right? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, if you have private insurance, you are not going to a community hospital. Completely different experience. In fact, I never, I, I never saw any takedowns. <laughs> I mean, yeah. worked there for months. You know, never saw any takedowns. Uh, never saw any bear hugs or uh, or you know headlocks. Never. It was not WWF. Mm-hmm. I, what I saw, but I saw people get agitated. I saw patients mm-hmm. who same illnesses uh, were agitated, were same aggressive, behaviors. same illnesses. Same issues, just a different community of people economically, for sure, mm-hmm. but same threat, right? I saw nurses comforting them, talking to them, having a conversation, them de-escalating them in their rooms, them really More trying patience. to be therapeutic, therapeutic, mm-hmm. hu- humane, loving, supportive, treating them like family, right? Like a, like a client, like someone they actually care about. Yeah. Racism. I want to touch on this because there's another layer to this. And if you have, so you have your individuals who lower income minorities versus your privately insured higher income individuals, they have different experiences in the world, right? And we've talked about reinforcement before many times in this podcast. Um, And we also talked about how trauma and how people react to you can make changes in your brain over time. Um, And we've talked about fight or flight. So when you have someone who is lower income minority grew up in an unstable household who has dealt with neglect or trauma, that is someone who may have more of a biologically a more hyperactive amygdala may go into fight or flight quicker than normal may have more, just a more hyper responsive fight or flight system. So you combo that with ongoing reinforcement of a more reactive nursing staff at the hospital, a more reactive police officer that creates a more reactive individual. And that just kind of continues to reinforce this, this ongoing fight or flight, this ongoing fear and tension between those two individuals, between the person the homeless person who comes into the psych ED and is faced with the nurse who is reactive and freaks out. And then the patient freaks out. And then it's just, it's just constantly reinforced that, that system, that fight or flight system that is very adaptive and can adjust to, to someone. It's, it's an, an adaptive system. I know I'm jumping all over the place, but it's a, this fight or flight system in our brains, our limbic system, our emotion center is very adaptive. So you have individuals who go to war and to Vietnam and your brain adjusts to that when you're hearing missile strikes and you're looking over your shoulder every minute because someone might jump out and shoot at you, your brain adjusts to that. So next thing you know, you're very, you hear one small thing, you turn your head and you look that way and that becomes protective in an environment like that when you're always under threat. Now you have individuals that happens here in the U S through their childhood, through their experiences they had as a kid, through racism, because people have treated them differently and reacted to them quicker 
and you have police officers have been more aggressive and violent towards them and police in general, they use fear as a tactic to keep order. Like I myself, white privilege, white male, I get nervous as I've been pulled over before for speeding. My heart pumps out of my chest. I get nervous as I'm sweating. I'm in fight, flight, or freeze. I just go into freeze mode usually most of the time. But yeah. I, I know history of trauma. So imagine someone, an individual who's even more hyper responsive to that. You don't know how you, you can't really necessarily control how you react when you're in fight or flight. We talked about this with the Miles Garrett incident on the football field. Once you go in fight or flight, you're running strictly off emotion. And if that's something that your brain has been primed up for since day one, you're going to go into that a lot quicker. So you're going to be acting off of emotions and that could be fight. That could be flight. That could be freeze. And you can't really predict which one it's going to be. So it's not only the fact that all these individuals have been more caustic towards this lower income person because of racism, because their own implicit biases that also primes that individual to be more on guard. And it's just this cycle that just continues to reinforce. And then you have the privileged person who goes to UCLA that's kind of is used to people taking their time with them, being a little bit more gentle, talking with them, whether it's a nurse or a police officer. And it, it reinforces the fact that you don't need to be in fight or flight. You can come out of it a lot quicker. So I know that was a kind of a confusing way to say it, but it's, no, it's based I, off I, people's I totally reactions to you and your reactions to them. And it gets reinforced over the years. And you end up having like two situations that look the exact same. Maybe from the outside, you have two inpatient psychiatric units, which you would think are the same. You have two patients with that schizophrenia or a psychotic episode, but the way the patients react is totally different partially because the way the nurses and the doctors react is totally different. And one ends up in a, in a hold, one ends up in a restraints getting emergent medications and the other ends up getting offered like an oral Ativan and, and can go sleep in their own room out of restraints. It takes a village. It takes a village to, to raise a, uh, a prejudice. And, uh, yeah, I mean, listen, so what's really interesting about what we're talking about now is you think about these confrontations between police officers and blacks and you, you weigh what you're talking about as it relates to, to like, you know, implicit bias, trauma, fight or flight, you put all this stuff together, right? And what you realize is that the police officer is probably feeling that way too, right? I mean, you realize that like both parties are subject to having these kinds of feelings, you know, like anxiety. I mean, you, you have to, you, in, you know, you do have to, to honor what police officers do as a career. You know, they're trying to protect all communities, uh, not just, you know, one community or, or another. And I think largely when they go into some of these situations, uh, uh, they, they're trying to protect the community, which is, a, in this case, a black neighborhood, uh, from a potential threat. So, you know, it, it's, it's, I think they, they go into it, you have to think with the right intentions. Um, but this is where racism can potentially take hold, okay? Because while I'm always going to protect a an ethical police officer 
right? And I'm always going to be on that side because I'm on the side of justice. I want to honor the uniform. I want to honor the sacrifice. I'm a military member myself. Uh, I was a man in the service, you know, that was part of the uniformed services. And so I get it. You know, it's, it's, it's a huge responsibility. You don't know what you're going to get into sometimes, right? You come up on a car, you don't really see what's happening. Suddenly, you know, someone pulls a gun. You never know. I get it. The problem is this. Oh, they're under threat constantly too. They're also, they're amygdalas and they're fight or flight systems. They're amygdalas, no, they're, exactly. And they've been traumatized. You know, mm-hmm. we have to appreciate both sides. The, the, the problem is this though, Tori. Um, the police officer is, you know, 99, 99% of the time, they are in the position of power, particularly when you're talking about an unarmed individual who's outnumbered, Right. The, the police officers can't, in these moments of attempting to, to detain a suspect, they can't be thinking that the community, the, the neighborhood around them is going to, to like attack them, right? They, their focus is only on that one suspect. And if they have the numbers and they have the weapons, there really is no meaningful threat other than the threat that's in their own heads. And that really, to me, speaks to the core of racism, is the fact that in these moments, in spite of their power and their privilege in these moments, they are unable to rely upon their humanity to see that person's pain, that person's suffering, that fight or flight response that you mentioned as actually a vulnerability, right? Instead, they interpret it as a threat. And that's, that's, that's the core of racism. And yeah, absolutely. And they're bringing their own baggage. They're bringing their own prejudices and implicit biases from their childhoods, from their lives to this point. And some people excuse that as well, it's pattern recognition. But at the end of the day, you, you have to go into each situation as an individualized new situation. Yeah. Um, yeah. You have to. It's the burden, it's the burden of the sacrifice is the burden of the job is the burden of, of being a good citizen of being a person that is, is acting is using your power for good and understanding your power and understanding your privilege. Right. And, 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 and using this power and privilege in accordance with justice. Mm-hmm. Right. Yep. Because justice, here's the thing about justice, Tori, justice is both sides, two sides, Two sides, always two, always two. No matter, you know, what, how the, 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 the scales are tipped, it's always two sides. So you have to be able to appreciate both in order to have justice. And what I see time and time again in these narratives around these discussions involving black versus white crimes, it's not balance, it's not justice it is one side and it and i, and I would say that it applies for the black community and the white community okay one side jumps on their narrative what they believe and they tune out the other side it's a non-starter it's not justice yeah. it's a it's there's so many different variables when it comes to playing a police officer that's why there has to be strict 
protocols. And if you deviate from a protocol, then there has to be some sort of judicial system, um, some sort of process to find out, okay, why did you deviate from the protocol? And there has to be a process to hold these individuals, hold these police officers accountable when they do deviate and when lives are lost. You know what, uh, one thing about that tour that never quite, I guess, resonated for me was um, why so many police precincts nationwide have seemingly always been opposed to this idea of having a third party, you know, or some sort of group, you know, uh, that, that would be like an independent body to investigate some of these matters, you know, like what happened in Minneapolis. I mean, and truth be told, well, we really don't have all the facts. We, we mm-hmm. don't know exactly what happened. I mean, there was a video, there was obviously, you know, eyewitness accounts, there was some, some footage, but until you, pe- you put all the pieces together, lay it all out there, it's really hard to know for sure. And I just don't, I guess, understand why any organization would hang their hats on having potential crimes or corruption internally being handled internally. Um, that doesn't, to me, seem to be a, a way of, of really being serious about wanting to root out uh, bad actors. Yeah, it, it reinforces that stigma. Like, no, if no one else can have a look inside, then it's people are always going to wonder, like, sorry, it's, the whole system's crooked. I, I, what, I, what I've seen, I, I know nothing about the criminal justice system, is I like when the, you see officers going door to door and just to, to meet their, to, their community, shake hands, talk to people, shoot hoops. I like when I see the police officer playing basketball <laughs> with the people, yeah. kids on the street. It's, it's fun to see, make those connections with these individuals and try not to, to lead by, or try not to do your job by fear, but more of, of safety and protection. You're, ultimately, police officers are here to protect us, each and every one of us. Hate, Tori, hate, hate's a symptom of, of fear. Hate is a symptom of fear. Fear is and a symptom of hate. Fear is absolutely a symptom of hate. And, you know, until we can learn how not to fear the things that we don't understand and the things that are not familiar to us, but instead appreciate them for their differences, you know, and appreciate each other for what makes us unique. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think that's really the answer. Yeah, I agree. And that's, that's self-acceptance, you know, mm-hmm. um, it starts with awareness yeah. always. Yeah. Um, but it has to end with acceptance. You know, you have to be willing to embrace something, something new, you know, something that you didn't, once understand or know about before um because part of this kind of evolution you describe the development you know becoming a more evolved person growing in your attitudes and opinions about things it's really a two-step process of both letting go of the old right and then embracing the new you have to do you have to do both yeah um it's scary though it's, it's challenging awareness. yeah 
And it ends with acceptance. Yep. Yeah, man. Absolutely. And I wanted to give our listeners something tangible to do because we've been talking about how like violent protests, protests in general, is that the best way to get the message across? I just started doing this guy because I had no idea. There's certain things you're passionate about, equality, justice. How, how can you make a true impact? So our government is set up, you know, you can, we can argue all day about if it's an efficient governing body or, or a corrupt governing body anyway, but how you can actually make tangible changes would be find out what district you reside in, what district you live in, then contact the legislators in your district and when you're in a legislator's district, you're called the constituent. I'm lear- I just learned this recently. So I'll give you an example because we were talking about implicit biases earlier, right? How all of us, whether innately or how we are raised, we, we have these implicit biases towards different things, whether it's, it's gender or, or race, what have you. So I actually researched an assembly member in my district. There's a 54th district here in Los Angeles that includes like Westwood, Culver City. She's also your assembly member. Her name's Sydney Camlocker Dove. And she is actually the one that signed AB, which stands for Assembly Bill 241 and 242 into law, which incorporated implicit bias training into continued education wow. for healthcare professionals, lawyers, and judges. Yeah. So her whole thing is like she, she recognized in, that injustice in the form of implicit bias is inherent in our healthcare and judicial systems. And these implicit biases have the power to alter people's lives within healthcare professionals, within judges. So she put a bill forward, signed into the law where everyone has to undergo implicit bias training. I think that stuff should start from, from, high, from high school. But anyways, my it's point is yeah. these, this is how you get tangible action. Cause we had, we both had to undergo implicit bias training through, through medical school and, and residency out here in California because of this law. So that's, things that we've actually had to do. So contact your legislators, find a bill that you're passionate about. There are bills out there that that can probably help with all these different things and contact them and hey, and let them know, hey, I'm I'm a constituent. I live in this district. You're my assembly member. I'm behind this bill. And they'll take you seriously because they know that you're a voter. You're a constituent, meaning you vote for that person to be, be part of the government. So they'll take you seriously. So contact them. And let them know, hey, I'm in favor of this because of this. I think we'll have a great impact. And if you, you go on there and you can look up all the bills that are up for vote, if you don't see something that is in the right direction with regards to equality, create something. Join together. Get a group of like-minded individuals that, and, and get together and create a bill. You can create. You have the power to create a bill. Talk to one of your legislators get it in the action get it signed get it signed into law think globally see all these things happen in minnesota happen throughout the world but act locally because you can really make use your voice use your voice Mm -hmm. use your voice use your you know we that's one that's one thing that that is pretty fucking cool about being an american is we all have a voice you know if, if you are fortunate enough to received your citizenship through birth or you've been you know naturalized or you've earned your citizenship through the immigration program you know you have a vote you have a vote 
in your local area, you mm-hmm. have a vote at the state level, you have a vote at the national level, mm-hmm. at the presidential um, level. You know, out, here in, out here in California, we can actually vote on like real stuff, like, like actually direct vote, right? These props, mm-hmm. um, you know, we, we can actually dictate how we want our government. We don't have everything going through one congressional body of representatives. Like there are certain things that we can have a direct impact. Yeah. I just looked on the, I looked up the bills today for Los Angeles County and there's one on there about uh, creating a suicide prevention group and organization within LA County within no, the state of California. Sorry. That is focused on suicide prevention. So there's bills in there. And I'm going to call my legislator and say, hey, I'm behind that. Let's get let's get that one going. You can do these things. I know, it, like you think about the presidential election, oh, my vote doesn't matter. There's so many different people, electoral college, whatever. I can, I can somewhat get that. You should still vote, definitely. But locally, your vote <laughs> means a whole lot in your voice, even more so than it your really vote. Does. If you actually talk to these assembly members, you contact your legislators, it means a whole lot more than you, you think. Your vote is your voice. That's your voice. Uh, it's your political voice. That's your political brand, your political statement. You know, use your voice. Stand up. Take a stand on something. It doesn't yeah. matter what it is. So, yeah, Just first, use first use your voice to identify what's going on inside your head, what's going on inside your heart, and you use your voice to understand what's going on around you with your yeah. family and your friends, your coworkers, and then use it to your local governments. Yeah, man. Levels. Time to, time to speak up. You can definitely make a difference. I mean, we've seen that like, historically. You know, you, you see, I mean, even, even uh, if you look at in the international scene in the last 20 years, all of the, the revolutions that have taken place across the world, in the Middle East, you know, folks who's like, look, like enough is enough. And now you see that, you know, there's this budding democracy in these places. You know, folks are actually voting for their leaders and you see that nations are thriving, right? Being able to vote is one of the most Im- important things, I think. It is the gift of democracy. A lot of people don't appreciate history the way that I think they should because it, you know, it wasn't that long ago when regular commoners, no matter what race you were, white, black, you know, it, a common person had no meaningful rights in most European countries, you know, 300 years ago, 400 years ago, democracy was, was something in, in particularly in, in, in a capitalist enterprise and economy where anyone and everyone who's a citizen could, you know, be their own boss. I mean, that's, <laughs> That's America, right? That's America's legacy. And it's a tremendous legacy. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's never been really about race. It was always about hard work and opportunity. Always. And creativity, you know, what you could bring to the table, no matter where you came from. That's the heart and soul of America. And that's what we have to get back to. Yeah. You know, I think at one time, America appreciated bringing you know, different people in from across the globe to enrich this country and to make it what it's become. You know, it's a very, very special 
diverse, uh, creative, you know, beacon of opportunity and, and hope for, you know, for the, the entire world. Um, we had to get back to, I think, our principles. I think this is what Barack Obama's legacy was really about at the end of the day, was you know, trying to remind this country of who we really are, you know, a little self-awareness. Mm-hmm. And you know, hopefully we can get to a point where collectively, you know, we can capture a bit of uh, self-acceptance. Yeah. And I know it's that the process of, of getting things done through the government, it, it's, you don't have that immediate feedback, that immediate validation that you get through maybe like throwing a, a brick through a police car. But in the long run, it'll pay off if you're able to say, put through a bill that's, that says that police officers need to go through all these different types of training before they can hold a gun, like add on more training, add on implicit bias, add on these checks to make sure these, these, these police officers don't have these, these racist kind of inherently racist thoughts. If you, maybe it's a bill that says, Oh yeah, you have to do a year of training and so and so whatever that will have more substantial benefits than, than throwing the, the brick through the police car. Absolutely, it will. And, and I really love your idea, Tori. I just very much appreciate what you said about getting the, you know, these police officers into their communities, like into the places in which they serve, um, you know, going into people's homes, right? Uh, Maybe you, going have to to do, the you have to do that for a year. Maybe you have to walk on foot. Yeah. You don't hold a gun and you yeah. have to go, fo- Canvas. go knock on doors. Canvas, like a, like a politician, right? Beat the streets, man. Like, get to know your people. Um, we had to, as doctors, their we, names. how many years of training do we have to do as doctors? We had to do, let's see, four years of medical school and then at least four years of residency. So, and that's after an undergraduate degree before we're, yeah. we, we practice under our, our own license. Yeah. Yeah, we don't mess around. <laughs> they make sure that you don't leave uh, our education and training experience without being, you know, Fully, fully immersed <laughs> in the experience. And fully, fully in debt. But that's a, <laughs> that too. a conversation that's for another time. Mm-hmm. Well, this, this is a beautiful conversation. I mean, it, it's, a, it's, it's a tough topic to, to talk about. I understand that we're obviously like, I'm a white male, you're a black male. But these are conversations and sometimes they're going to be sloppy. Sometimes they're going to be emotional. Sometimes you're not always going to say the right thing. And you're going to you're going to stumble over your words and you may say you may put your foot in the, your mouth at times but if you can try to have this conversation the easier and easier it'll get and i appreciate being able to have this conversation with you dr hose armin yeah man no you're absolutely right um you hit the nail on the head it it's it's a conversation that has to be had you know if if you're if you're really a friend Right. And you really say that you love your neighbor, you love your brother, you know, or frankly, it doesn't even have to be about love if you just want to coexist peacefully and not live in fear. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And you have to have the conversation. Yeah. And you may like you may inadvertently like expose yourself of someone who does have implicit biases and do, who who has done like racist things or has racist thoughts. But that's okay if you're talking about them and you're willing to work through them. You're willing to be have an open mind and be flexible. Yeah, 
And, you know, just like we talked about earlier with LeBron's legacy and, and what that means for not only young athletes, but just young people, just people in general around the world, um, that you can come from any circumstance and still be not only great, like Michael Jordan, but you can have it your way. You can do it on your terms. You can create your own legacy. And you can have a life that you know, I think you can look back at the end of the day and be very proud of and thankful for, not just because of your own personal accomplishments, but because of the accomplishments of what you're, you were able to create for others around you uh, and the community that you were able to uplift and you know, the people you were able to inspire. And that becomes then a collective legacy, right? And something that really stands against the sands of time you know, um, in a, in a very powerful way. Yeah. You know, we talked earlier, I think the most powerful thing we talked about here was no people should no longer be silent. Yeah. Right. People, white people who say they aren't racist should no longer be silent. Black people, Asian people, Latinos, immigrants, whoever they come to this country and recognize something wrong we should no longer be silent. And, and I think that's really what's so tremendous and important about the growing and ever-evolving legacy of LeBron James is that he teaches us and the young people of the world he inspires to use your voice, use your voice for more than just your given identity. Be who you want to be and say what you believe, what you mm-hmm. want to say, right? And, and that is, that's when you really have something, man. That's when you have, I think, true fulfillment in life. You know, I think being great at something, one thing, you know, being the best at one thing, you know, that's, that's amazing. I mean, that's certainly a life that I think you know, one can be proud of. Yeah, but at some point, you're no longer going to be the best at that one thing. Exactly. Exactly. Nothing lasts forever. As, 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 as individuals, our individual legacies, right, it can't last forever. Um, but the legacy of a collective community can, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and um, I, I really, I just see the future of this country and what I hope that we can become is rather than a nation of many tribes, a nation of one, you know, one tribe, one voice, one collective community um, in which we stand by the principles of America, which uh, have nothing to do with race has to do with hard work, sacrifice, commitment, dedication, ethics, values, integrity. Yeah. And I think you can, you can extrapolate that to 
like obviously I have pride in, in my country, but at the same time, uh, you can extrapolate that to worldwide. It's just not just, these are kind of American values, but I think they're, they're human values. Yeah. And they are. that's, that's one of the reasons why America over the years became so successful is because of those values. But I think they, they are, it's beyond just United States of America. It's the whole world. It's the globe. We all want to, we all want to be united through these values. I think that's the ultimate goal. Unity. Yeah, man, I love that. Unity. And unity is, is, it's about color, but it's about recognizing that the more color you have, right, the more beauty it possesses, right? Mm -hmm. And when it comes to, you know, to variety and it comes to creating, uh, I think, really the, the parts of humanity that um, just make it great to be alive, you know, and really inspire love, hope, you know, and all the things that I think make life worth living. Social connection. Uh, I think it's. I think it's all about relationships. Mm-hmm. I think it's all about you know, connecting with uh, with your your fellow man. And I think it's about peace and I think it's about really just, just love, man, you know, just really just getting back to just loving each other and protecting each other. And again, appreciating each other for what makes us unique and different and not what makes us the same. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right, man. Let's end the stigma. Let's continue the conversation. Mm-hmm.